Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. We'll be in Judges 17 and 18 tonight. I wish I could say this is a edifying, blessed chapter. It's God's word. I'll say that. But we are, we're at the end of Judges. Some people feel that Judges 17 and 18 is kind of like an addendum or an add-on to the book of Judges for a few reasons. We're going to get into the story of a guy named Micah, not the prophet Micah, just a person named Micah. And uh, he's not a judge. So why is he in the book of Judges? Um, likely, this could be the case. There's no indication historically that this was ever not part of the book of Judges. So when we get to these two chapters and then the last three chapters, um, traditional scholarship is they're all part of the same book. It's part of the same message. At the beginning of Judges, we had a few chapters that didn't have Judges in them, remember? And now here we are at the end of Judges, and there's a few chapters that don't have Judges in them. The point of the book is that they had a great start with Joshua and everything fell apart. And then God brought them a king. So being compiled during an age when they were kings, most people believe Samuel put this book together. They grabbed these stories of the judges, put them into a book to show why they needed a king. Because everything they tried under judges and living under God's law, it just, the people rebelled. So I think what we're going to get in these chapters, well, we're going to get a summary of what that looks like, a little picture. So chronologically, 17 and 18, there'll be a couple clues that tell us this really happens towards the beginning of the book of Judges. So when it says the people just did what was right in their own eyes, that's the core of this chapter 17 um, that's going to make that point by showing it to us. And we're going to see that through the chapter. So we had, at the beginning of Judges, some judges that rose up in the name of God. They were righteous people leading a righteous people, right? And so the beginning of Judges starts with Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, and Gideon, heroes of the faith. And then we get nameless, Tola, Jer, Jephthah, gives his daughter away foolishly, Ibzan, Elon, Abdon, and it ends with Samson, not an example or a hero of the faith, but he did something, and God used him somehow. Now we get Micah, not even a judge, definitely not a hero of the faith. So that's our chapter for tonight. Are you ready for this? Uh, the good news is, I think there's a ton to learn, and we're looking at a nation that's fallen away from God. And I, and, and I don't, you know I don't get too p political, but we, regardless, we have different people on the political spectrum in this room tonight. Wherever you're at on that spectrum, it's hard to think things are going great when you look out into the world right now. But when you look in the church, things are going amazing. And, and there's some beautiful things that are going on in the church. And that's where God tells us to keep our eyes. Keep our eyes focused on him. So now we get this summary and epilogue. The good news is, as depressing as Judges is at the ending, then we get Ruth right after it, which is like the opposite of these two chapters. 
So where here we get an example of somebody just doing whatever they want, however they want to do it, and it's a disaster. Then you get this remnant of people that are trying to be righteous, like Ruth, who's a contemporary of the book of Judges. So at the same time that you got idiots like Micah, you've got wonderful people like Ruth and Boaz and Naomi that we're going to get to really soon. So that's a thing. One last note before we get into the chapter. La la, chapter 17 is one giant chiasm. So those of you that haven't been here long enough to know what a chiastic form is, chiastic form is where the message is in the middle because you've got two little scrolls, and no matter which way you roll the scroll, the message on either side is fairly consistent. So this chapter is a giant chiasm. I'll show that to you. It's in poetic form, which is another indication that this is a very intentional part of Judges. It is a summary chapter of what's going on. The first half of the chapter, we see Micah, sinner. The second half of the chapter, we see Micah getting jacked for his sins. And we see a Levite priest living in as much sin as the general population. So on both sides of the chiasm, we see kind of these narratives. So we'll dig in with verse 1. Now there was a man from the mountains of Ephraim whose name was Micah. Mountains of Ephraim is an indication... The mountains of Ephraim is where Shiloh is. And what's in Shiloh, Shiloh right now? Anyone? The, the tabernacle. So when we see that first sentence, what that says to a Hebrew Jewish reader is, oh, right next door to the tabernacle, we got this. So the location of it has some significance. The word Micah is an ironic name. Uh, it is who is like our God is the meaning of that in the Hebrew. So that is, uh, well, you'll see the irony as we go through here. It's a guy ignoring God's law completely. Uh, and it's right next to the tabernacle. But even though there's this wonderful tabernacle in God's law, and David in the psalm says, I delight in your law. Like, I, we should love God's law because God's law is good and graceful. And if everyone lives under God's law, we don't have theft or stealing or murder or adultery. Those things aren't allowed under God's law. If everyone loved God's law, we would have a better world if we looked a lot more like God wanted us to. It's the problem is everyone doesn't love God's law. So right next to the tabernacle, you got this. Verse 2, Micah says to his mother, and he said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you on which you put a curse, saying it even in my ears, here is the silver with me, I took it. So we get dropped right into the middle of this story. Guy walks up to his mom and says, remember that 1,100 shekels? Which, by the way, is similar to what Delilah got paid. And I don't know if that's a connection we're supposed to see or not. It's a huge sum of money, a lordly sum of money. He says, remember that money that you had that God stole? And then you said, whoever took that money, I cursed them. And he was in the room and heard it. Well, he doesn't want to be cursed, so he gives his mom the money back. So we've already broken one of the Ten Commandments, which is honor your father and mother and do not steal. Just first sentence of the story. Laws are getting broken left and right. Um, so here's your money back, Mom. Note he's not confessing a darn thing. There's no admission of guilt or repentance here. Just, I don't want to be cursed, so I'm going to give you your money back. And his mother said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my son. So when he returned, he had, so when he had returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son. 
to make a carved image and a molded image. What? What are you doing with God's? And you're doing this in the name of God to make a carved image and a molded image because why not? Now, therefore, I'll return it to you. And thus he returned the silver to his mother. Then his mother took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to the silversmith and he made it into a carved image and a molded image. And they were in the house of Micah. Plot is set for the story. Um, <laughs> I feel like I need to just point all this out, but this, it kind of tells itself, right? Uh, he's, he's making idols. They're taking the Lord's name in vain. There is a disregard of honoring father and mother. There is theft going on here. Um, There is a love of money. There is a not properly tithing process in Leviticus of how that's supposed to work. Um, There is a selfishness here. There's a lack of repentance. Uh, When he said, I took it, it's like one of those weak apologies. Like instead of saying, I'm sorry, you say, I'm sorry you feel that way, right? It's... (laughs) It's a, in the Hebrew, it's, they have a word for theft or, or stealing. They're not using that word. He just took it. He didn't steal it. He took it. So it's a much lighter kind of, of opinion or, or use of the language there. Um, 1,100 shekels of silver in verse 10. Uh, if you skim down, he's going to pay this priest uh, 10 shekels per year. So this is 110 years worth of labor that we're talking about. This is a huge amount of money. So if you take that into modern parlance, you can do the math. It's a lot is the math that mine came out to. Uh, the mother's not named. You've got to look at chapter 16 where she gets paid 1,100 shekels of silver, not something that's common. And you've got to wonder, is this Delilah and this is her kid that we're dealing with? Um, the Bible doesn't say it either way, but it's definitely the number is significant and it's a unique number that gets used in both chapters. Uh, it says both a carved image and a molded image, which isn't just redundancy. Those mean slightly different things. Um, but first, some I just, again, may, we know this. Any Hebrew reading this hopefully is aware of the law. And when they read this, they don't read it as, oh, cool, she's using Jehovah's name. This must be a good person. They would read this and say, she's breaking rules left and right here. Deuteronomy 7.15 Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image. It's an abomination to the Lord. She's cursing people for stealing her money, but when she makes the molded image, the irony there would stick out to anybody who loves God's law. Exodus 20, verse 4. Thou shalt not make unto you any graven image or the likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's on the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. So to make a carved image is to carve something out and put it up and worship it. To make a molded image would be to pour hot metals into, like a silversmith, into a mold and then put it out. Apparently, they're doing both here. So they're going to pour it and then they're going to carve it. It's going to be a fine work of metal in both senses of it. Using the Lord's name in vain here, they use the Lord's name, but we see in the Old Testament It's possible to call yourself a follower of Jehovah and totally disregard Jehovah's law. That should be a terrifying prospect for Jewish people. That it is just being Jew doesn't make you saved. Just being a Hebrew isn't going to get you there. Um, Actually, this happened one time before when Aaron made the calf, you know, the golden calf story, that was made to honor Jehovah. And it was done in the name of Jehovah. It was still evil when they did it. Jeremiah 51, 17, if you want another reference. 
Everyone is dull-hearted and without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by the carved image. For his molded image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. It's not a problem of doing artwork and carving something nice. The problem is thinking that they have life or power in them, that they mean something beyond beautiful artwork. And when people do that, it contradicts what God's word says. So when this mom says they're doing it in the Lord's name, it really doesn't matter because they're doing something in the Lord's name that's contrary to the word of God. And I'm building this up because I want you making your own connections here to the world we live in today. Saying that it's being done in Jesus' name, but being contrary to what God's word says is not good. And this chapter is driving that point home. Uh, it shows the depth of evil in someone's heart when not only are they doing evil, but they're doing evil and they're saying it's God that they're doing for. Or in our case, they're saying they're doing it in Jesus' name. It's to use the Lord's name in vain. And they're doing that too. Oh, that's another commandment they're breaking. Um, the silversmith and he made it. There's no indication that the silversmith resisted this at all. Like this was what they do. Do you see that? It's being done easily and with no conviction. The sin in Israel is so prevalent, nobody notices that it's bad anymore. She doesn't have to argue with the silversmith. She just asks for it to be made and it gets made. It's just like going downtown and doing something that's sinful and people just take your money and you do it. And there's no big deal. I think that's the most risky thing for Israel right now is sin is not hard to do. There's no secrecy around it. It's just out in the open in public. And when a nation and society gets like that, this is the argument of the book of Judges. That's the place where God has to intervene with those people. This is why God has to step in. So verse 5, the man, Micah, they keep, this is the second time they refer to him. He's just a guy. He's just an average schmo Micah, right? We're not talking about some unique judge or prophet. We're just talking about a man named Micah, right? Indicative of all of Israel. The, he, sets, he has a shrine, verse 5. And he made an ephod, that's the, the garb that the priests would wear in the tabernacle, and a household idols. And he consecrated one of his sons who became a priest. And, and, and I feel bad that Grant taught last week, because you could read that as, you know, I didn't consecrate Grant, God did, and he taught the word. Um, but he makes a shrine, he makes an ephod, he makes idols, and then he consecrates one of his sons outside the tabernacle system, and he's just a guy living in the mountains of Ephraim. He's not a Levite. Shouldn't be consecrating people because God's already consecrated the Levites to do this work. But he doesn't care about any of that. He's just going to do it on his own. Um, he's going to mock or imitate or shadow uh, what's going on at the tabernacle. The ephod thing is using the traditions that God tried to establish, and he's doing something that's a resemblance of it, but it's not the tabernacle. Right, And we see that happening a lot of times. People do things in Jesus' name. looks something like what it's supposed to look like, but it's not what Jesus asked for. It's not what the book of Acts says to do or how to do it. So the household items, the, the Hebrew word there is teraphim. It's interesting. It, it rhymes with seraphim, angels. To make these idols is to have family idols that are giving them or they believe these idols are giving them prosperity. And that was a melding of the Canaanite worship system with the Israeli worship system or the Hebrew worship system. Uh, it's distinct from the shrine at the beginning, two different items. <laughs> What's weird is I get to go into a lot of houses for what I do in my day job. And 
people are making shrines all over the place. You wouldn't believe how many things I see in people's homes. I've seen entire bedrooms dedicated to being a shrine. Not in some weird, I like Marvel comics, but I've seen that too. But actual shrines to actual statues of, of a religious system that they believe are their gods. It is not only a growing feature in the United States, but it's the follow-up to some of those things that seem like harmless religions like Buddhism. Buddhism very quickly turns into a shrine in your house that you think has some sort of force or power in your life. At the end of the day, when you get into real trouble, that statue's not helping you out because it's empty and it's dead. It's just a fat guy made into a carved image, but it doesn't help you. Um, so this idea that shrines are building, the other shrines, like we were in a guy's house, he turned his entire basement into like a car museum. And he, you got him talking about cars, you could tell it's what he worshiped. His eyes lit up. He was, oh, I've been doing this my whole life. I worked on my first car when I was this age and that age. This is my retirement. It's not only something he worshiped, it's where he put his hope. If anything ever goes bad, all I need to do is sell one of these cars and I'm, I'm okay financially. This is my retirement fund. And they were nice cars. They were gorgeous cars. He had a couple that made it into magazines and things like that. And it was fun to walk around with them. But at the end of the day, he's a lonely guy in a house full of cars. And you think, oh, brother, you got, there's better ways to live your life. Sports shrines, I don't want to horribly offend my sports fans, but it can become a religion where you are hanging up the jerseys and you're getting things signed and it's what you love and it's what you live for. The problem with entertainment is that it can quickly become consuming in your life. And Christians gotta keep that in balance. We can watch a sporting event, no big deal. It's when it dominates your life, when it's what you look forward to. They say the problem with alcohol is when you'd rather drink an alcohol than go be with people. Like that's kind of the line. I think the line's maybe a little further back from that. But there's a problem when we start taking these simple little shrines. I'm sure Micah thought this was no big deal. And that's how it's presented. He sets up a shrine. He makes his own little garments, like costumes, and like the rise in like parties where we dress up, which we're going to do in a few weeks here. Um, but that idea that he's, he's doing this in association with a faith system, that he thinks he's going to be blessed by doing this, that's different than just going to a costume party. That it really is at a different level, right? And then he makes his son into a priest, which means his son then is tending to this shrine. They're actually investing resources into keeping this thing up. And that's why I thought of the guy with the sports cars, right? Time, money, what you watch with your eyeballs. I know what you worship by where you spend your money, where your eyeballs sit, and where you spend your time. It's what you live for. Because we have one limited resource, and that's our life. It's the minutes of our life that we get to spend. At the women's retreat, they talked about counting your minutes. Well, how many minutes a day do we spend in prayer? How many minutes a day do we tend to our hobbies? And you start looking at those things, and I'm just presenting that in the book of Judges, Micah's doing that behavior. He's building his own little thing. And he lights up and he enjoys it. And you start to see when you meet people what they live for. By when you get them on that topic, that's when they light up. You know what I mean when I say light up? Like that's the topic you bring up and all they want to do is talk about that. Well, you kind of see where their heart is at. It's what the Bible means when it says that. Micah is not in that place. He wants to worship his own little idols. So he's consecrating and setting his son apart 
for that work. When we consecrate and set things apart, we are not like the pagans. We set our own lives apart. We don't set other people's lives apart. Mike is setting his son's life apart for the worship of this thing in the name of God, but it's against what God says to do. None of this is from God. So when we know God's word, we should be appalled when we see it being broken this way in the name of God. And the problem with Israel is they didn't know God's word. They weren't, Micah clearly didn't, hadn't read it or because there's no sense of guilt here. Verse six, in those days, the writer of Judges is basically saying this is what it was like. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's no king. When we don't have a king, then we do what we think is right. If you have a king, you submit to the will of the king. And the writer here is writing from a period when there was a king in Israel that demanded or expected certain behaviors. God, I think,'s initial intent was that independently we choose to serve the Lord God Almighty. We don't need a king, an earthly king, to tell us how to do that. What we need is a heavenly king that we follow. And that's what Joshua set up, but it doesn't work with humanity. We need a better king. Hmm, when could we get a better king, Lord? And for 2,000 years, the Jews are saying, Lord, we need a better priest. We need a better king. We need a better judge. We need a better prophet. We need something that's perfect, eternal, and holy because all you get here is just sin and corruption. So it creates this need for a Messiah. And that's, I think, where Judges is going with this. Verse 6 that's the middle of the chapter. That's the chiastic center of this thing is everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. So I want to spend just a couple seconds on this. Minutes, okay, let's face it. Deuteronomy 12.8 says very specifically, just so we know that what's wrong with this sentence, you shall not do as we are all doing here today, every man doing what's right in their own eyes. The Bible clearly says, if you're doing what's right in your own eyes, you're not in the will of God. This is tough for humanity because we all think we're doing what's right in our own eyes. We all think that we're doing it perfectly. It takes a humble heart before God to admit that maybe we're not doing it the way God wants us to do it. That's a really, this is a super convicting chapter when you look at it that way and with that lens. It's become definitive though of the entire book of Kings, Chronicles, Ruth, all of it. The problem with humanity is we do what we think is right in our own eyes. Proverbs 16.2, all the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. The Lord's going to judge, not us. So when we do something and we think it's right, we have to be really careful that it lines up with the word of God because we should assume that our own instincts are wrong, that we will tend to do selfishness and selfish living instead of tending towards holy and righteous. If we want to be holy and righteous, we have to be at battle with that. That's the struggle Paul talks about. So notice that it says, in his own eyes. This is kind of like we would say, find your bliss, do your own thing, follow your heart. That's the kind of language that the judges is pointing out here. The eyes are what define the judge. The question is, whose eyes are going to judge us? Is it the eyes of God? or our own eyes. And the temptation of humanity is we think we're good enough. And we should know that we're not. Right? That's not a seeker-friendly message. We are all sinners saved by grace. We agree on that? 
Romans says it. They make it super clear in the Bible. We're all fallen short. There's not one of us that's good. No, not one. And that goes against what we think in our own head. Well, I'm good enough. Or I'm not as bad as so-and-so. You know, look at how horrible these people are. And we're not that bad because that's in our own eyes. But we're not to use our own eyes. We're supposed to use God's eyes. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all of them lay out what's right in God's eyes. There's no question after reading the Torah what God thinks is good and what God thinks is holy. So when, it, when God takes that much time to lay it out for us, one mistake is, and I think Satan's got a lot of people, they don't even read the Torah. So if you don't have a reference point and know what God thinks is right and wrong, then your natural instincts to just do what you think is right and wrong. And that leads to entire nations getting off course. God's defined holy. It's not for us to critique. It's for us to do our darndest to be that and to follow that. God's watching. He already has. Joshua shows us what godly leadership looks like. He shows us how a nation should move and stop at God's command. But we are humans, and that is how it works. So there's a way, a way that seems right to man, Proverbs 14, 12. But the end of that way is death. You can do what you think is right. It ends in death. That's a truth that we can say in love to people. The temptation of Christians is we think we're better than sinners because we forget that we are sinners. And then we look at people that are living in that sin and instead of having pity because they're heading towards the grave with that lifestyle, we want to tell them how to live instead of inviting them to a loving relationship with God who God can work on their Holy Spirits a lot better than we can. But you got to have faith that God can work on spirits just like he worked on our spirits. And, and so when we invite people, we invite in fellow sinners that are at a different place in their walk with Christ than we are. And it, it, the temptation of the church is to be legalistic. And, to, to, and, and for me, that, that's sad because we get a lot of people that think there isn't a place in the church for them, that God doesn't want them because God's people don't want them. And that's a difficult place for us to be. And I'm not saying being permissive of sin, but to be loving and build relationships should come far before when we start telling people um, how they have to be before they can listen to the word of God, right? It's a little different story if you want to be in the ministry, right? You should probably mature a little bit and get your stuff lined up. Um, but we show that faithfulness. Uh, another thought here, and again, I think it's worth spending time on because it really is the middle verse of this chapter. There's nothing about a walk with God that's instinctive. And I really spent some time thinking about this because I had a whole week to sit and think about these things. Showing up faithfully to a Bible study, I, I'm guessing most of you have been through this. That's a tough thing to do. Like before the Bible study, you're like, oh, I'm tired tonight. I don't know if I want to go. Got to get up tomorrow. There's always reasons not to, but God says to be faithfully part of a, a community of believers and to be there religiously. That's one of the things God asks is faithfully be there. Give him one day of your week. Give him the Sabbath. And it's such an easy thing to skip, isn't it? There's nothing instinctual about giving God the Sabbath. But we're asked to do it uh, reading the Bible faithfully. We're asked to be in the Word. We should eat the Word, consume it like a meal. How hard is that? Uh, and I'm speaking for myself, folks. Like, I wouldn't be able to speak like this if I'm just accusing people. How hard is it for me to just get in the Word every day? I'm blessed when I do it, but getting the habit in place, it is not instinctual. 
I wasn't born with, I was born with the desire to climb rocks, eat mud, poop in my pants. I was born with the desire to throw things at people, steal their Legos. I was not born with the instinct to read the Bible. But there's something in my soul that's blessed when I do it. Praying with other people. Some of you have even said this. When you first come to Bible study and we pray afterwards, that's hard, isn't it? It's awkward the first few times you do it. Once you do it, you get used to it. It's part of your life. You're totally blessed by it. But the first few times, it's like, I don't want to embarrass myself. I don't want to say the wrong thing. There's nothing instinctual about praying with other believers. Yet the Bible tells us to do it. Here, you want more examples? Singing in worship. I know, right? (laughs) I can tell you I spent 10 years not wanting to sing in worship because I was ashamed of my voice and I didn't want to bother the people next to me. Now I'm like, screw it. I'm singing as loud as I can. And if they're barred, this is my God I'm singing to. I'm not going to do that halfway, right? I did the thing where like, as I got more mature in the faith, I went from hands to my sides, then hands to here, then hands, like, you know, and, and you don't want to be the only person in the room doing it because that can be a distraction. But when you have a room full of people worshiping the Lord, and there's nothing more beautiful than that. But it's not instinctual. Our flesh is embarrassed to do the things of God because we fight against our flesh. Here's more, ministering to one another. Like in church, the instinct of the flesh is go hear the word, figure out where your hands are, get the heck out of there afterwards, (laughs) right? That's the flesh. But how much are we blessed when we just hang around for a few more minutes and look around the room and say, who can I get to know this week? Who can I minister to this week? Who can I serve and encourage this week? When God's people do that, God's people move. And God works through that ministry of the saints one to another in powerful ways, but it's not instinctual. It's instinctual for us to just be selfish and take care of ourselves. And it's beautiful in the church because people will come up and minister to you. And as a new believer, you're like, thank you, I'll take it all. But eventually you're like, maybe I should give something back. But it's not instinctual. Point being, generosity Man, nothing instinctual about being generous. But it is something that as you grow in your faith, you start to find huge blessing in being generous to other people. And in fact, it's even better when they don't know that you did it for them, right? Those people that do that kind of thing, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. And you can bless people. Grant, thanks for ministering to me with this lamp, by the way. This has been a huge blessing. That was you. Thank you. Thanks for training my son in. Um, There's nothing instinctual about admonishing someone in the word of God because it can lead to conflict. But you know you got to do it. You got to talk to that friend you've had for decades and you got to address something. There's nothing instinctual about giving people a word of knowledge. Did that really come from God? Am I supposed to say that? If you don't know what I mean when I say word of knowledge, we'll get there. It's in a few chapters, three, four years, we'll get there. Um, Witnessing to people. There's nothing instinctual about going out and just introducing and talking to somebody about the gospel. I tell you, when you break that mold and you do it, all you want to do is do it all the time. Like, it is a pure joy and a blessing when you get used to sharing your faith with other people with boldness and courage, grace and mercy and humility. When that happens, it's beautiful. But there's nothing instinctual about any part of our walk with God. All of it is a struggle. And you can be a brand new believer and you're going to spend your whole life wrestling against your flesh on that next thing so that you're not doing what's right in your own eyes. You're doing what's right based on what God told you to do in your life. I love that this comes after the Torah. 
Judges is a great book to come right after the Torah because it's so practical. You can know the law, but until you do it, you're just like Micah, just doing your own thing, walking through life, living your life for yourself. I hope that's an admonishment that comes with love. Each of these steps says, Lord, I'm going to think about what you're doing. I'm going to see it in the word. I'm going to make a choice to do it, even though I'm uncomfortable the first couple times. Because I know, oh God, that if I do what you ask me to do, I'm going to be blessed by that. And I don't want to do what's right in my own eyes. I just want to do the things you've told me to do. So I hope it was worth a few minutes to go through. Those are clearly biblical things we're told to do. And wherever you're at in your walk, God bless you. Keep doing what's right in God's eyes and not in your own eyes. And anytime you make a change in your life, it's painful. Change is painful. But it's good. Like getting a cavity out of your mouth. On the other end of it, it's great. Or you can keep chewing on other things. So verse 6 is the thesis statement. Not only I think of chapter 17, of the whole book of Judges. So we're getting to the, the crux of what this is all about. The actions of the people of Israel support what's going to happen to them. Um, the Levites were supposed to be spiritual guides for the nation. Leviticus, the entire book of Leviticus, Numbers chapter 3 and 4. They're supposed to be people that correct people like Micah. Like a Levite shows up and they should say, Micah, you got to tear down the shrine. You gotta... So this next part, the second half of the chapter, should be as appalling as the first half of the chapter. Because we don't see that they're being shepherds to the people. In fact, they're not only not being shepherds, they're doing the opposite. Numbers 18, the Levites are supposed to support the people of Israel. Joshua 21, they're supposed to be located in particular cities of refuge, and they're supposed to serve their regions. So when we see in verse 7, um, now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah. He was a Levite, and he was staying there. He's not supposed to be staying in Bethlehem. That's not a Levitical city. So we get this image of just kind of like a roaming, traveling monk, which is not what we see in Leviticus. Um, they think that there's freedom in doing whatever you want to do, but at the end of the day, the second half of this chapter is going to show there's no freedom at all in doing whatever you want to do. Because if you don't follow the law, the person next to you doesn't follow it either. And if you can do whatever you want to do, they can do whatever they want to do too. So we'll get back to the the narrative here. Um, Bethlehem is a, a, by the way, just chalk it up on our little list, another reference to this small town in Judah called Bethlehem. No other reason than it's just this town. And so once again, we see Bethlehem get mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh, and in this case, there's a wandering priest. Wasn't likely started out in Bethlehem, so is probably doing the same thing in Bethlehem that he's doing here. Uh, the fact that he's a Levite just staying wherever he wants says that he's just completely disregarding the book of Leviticus, doing whatever he wants. Um, the man departed from the city of Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he could find a place, just doing whatever. No instruction from God. He's not praying or asking for direction. Just working for hire, whoever will put him up. Then he came to the mountains of Ephraim to the house of Micah as he journeyed. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah. I'm on my way to find a place to stay. So he's just a traveling, roaming monk. He's like a minstrel. Walking through the land, singing songs. Micah said to him, verse 10, Dwell with me. Be a father and a priest to me, and I'll give you ten shekels of silver per year. A suit of clothes 
and your sustenance. So the Levite went in. Oh, this sounds like a great deal. I got a job. I can hang out. I'm going to get a set of clothes. So he gets paid this amount of money. Uh, seems to be enough to, to lock him down. <clears throat> so Micah is doing idol worship in a shrine in his house. And he brings this guy in the door to do it. Notice the phrase, be a father and a priest. Really, this is not a tradition most Christians have taken up. We don't call our spiritual leaders or priests father, but there are traditions that do that. The Catholic is probably the largest one. They call their spiritual leaders father. Um, the only father we have is in heaven. So this is an odd thing that you would take a passage from a chapter like this and turn that into your vocabulary because this is not a chapter that exemplifies what it should look like. But he wants to call this person father. Um, so it's a title like Father Jack. Um, and he wants to bring him in and do that. Um, it's interesting that he asks for this person to be a priest or a, someone to him, but he's totally disregarding the law of that same religion and doing it. So if only they can find a Levite, why does Micah even want, he's already consecrated his son, right? So why does he want this priest to come in? And it's because it justifies his behavior. If I can just get somebody to agree with how I'm doing it, then it must be holy. Well, if there's only a group of people doing it, then it must be in God's name. But God's written his word and he's made it fairly clear. So the Levite went in, he calls over, he comes in and he does it. Verse 11, then the Levite was content to dwell with the man. Doesn't even call him Micah there, just the man. The young man became like one of his sons to him. So they have a fake family. So Micah consecrated the Levite. I'm justified in that as we get later on in the chapter. So Micah consecrated the Levite. Wait, Who's Micah to consecrate anybody? He's just consecrating people left and right. The young man became a priest and lived in the house of Micah. Okay. Uh, then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord, by the way, the word Lord there should be in all capitals Jehovah, Yahweh, Yeshua. He's using the name of God, so he knows the name of God. Now I know that the Lord will be good to me since I have a Levite as a priest. Since I've bought off a Levite, <laughs> God must love me. What's interesting is I had one discussion with a very intelligent man who was vehement about the fact that he didn't need to resolve things with a brother because he wanted me to do something. I was just like, go talk to him yourself. You're a nice guy. He's a nice guy. Go have a conversation. I don't need to be in the middle of that. And he got very, very angry with me because he had a priest who told him that that passage in Matthew doesn't count, that he doesn't have to go talk to people. So we pulled out the Bible and I read it and it said, you know, I'm a simple guy, but it says if you have a problem with a brother, you should go resolve that. So you should go resolve that. But he felt so justified because he found a priest that said what he wanted to hear. And that's one of the problems we have today. If only I find a church or a priest or a pastor or a rabbi that tells me what I want to hear, then it must be okay. But you're not okay just because I said something or anybody else says something. You're okay in the eyes of God and God alone. So I'll say, as I always say, it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what the Bible says. And our goal is to understand what the word says, what the intent of the word says, but it's your job to apply it to your life and to carry it forward. I might give some examples, but as many of you have already found out, I'll say things you disagree with. And that's okay because we're all believers 
And we're all seeking out. And I'm not perfect either. But hey, Micah, I got a priest hired, so now I'm good with God. And that's all that matters to him. All of this, a Hebrew reader would read this chapter, and this is all sin. This is sin worthy of getting executed over, if you look at Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But they're convinced it's a good thing that they're doing all this. And verse 13 is such a damning sentence. Anyone that's read Mosaic Law would see this as completely wrong. Let me give you some examples of what's happening in America today. If you're interested, um, you can attend the 100 Harmonies Church. Go ahead and Google search this one. If you want to go to 100 Harmonies Church, when you walk in the door, you can't have, quote, you can't have Jesus without cannabis. Because it took six and a half pounds of cannabis to anoint Jesus. This is what Pastor Fan says. The Bible has everything to do with weed. That was in Rolling Stone March 5th, 2019, just two years ago. And the Church of 100 Harmonies has grown since then. You want another example? (laughs) Come on. This is my geekiness. If only I can find a pastor that says what I want him to say. Man, I can smoke weed and listen to the Bible at the same time. I guarantee you they're not teaching the Bible. They're not. They might take a verse and then tell some stories around it, but they're not going through it chapter by chapter because there's no way you can read this word and think that it's a godly thing to be under the influence while you're trying to serve him. Here's the other one which you've all heard of. You know it. Admit it. Elvis Chapel in Las Vegas. You can choose between a civil ceremony or you can have a religious ceremony. If you want it to be done in the name of God, you can. The chapel is suitable for both religious and civil ceremonies. This is off their website. You can hire a priest or a celebrant on your behalf so the ceremony is carried out according to your personal beliefs. Pick your belief system. We'll marry you. Like This is happening in our country. And I, I, I know you're not all fans of the Elvis Chapel, but come on, if you go to Las Vegas, you'd drive by it, right? Check it out. God sees that as an absolute abomination. It's absolutely taken his name in vain. Anyone who knows God's word knows that there's churches all over this country telling people what they want to hear. And it's not okay. And that's this image of this Levite just doing things their own way They do it in the name of God. You know, they have a shrine, but it's so ungodly. It's not the right thing to do. And and the idea that he says, now I know, is that he has intellectually convinced himself. When you say you know something, you've raised it past an opinion or a feeling. He says, now I know. That's the lure of comfortable religion. And it's so comfortable. And I'm guilty of this. Doing it in your own living room is really comfortable. Right? (laughs) Right? And, it, and it, it takes some work to get out of your house and go do it the way God said to do it, right? And so this comfort of compromise that he's in, he, then it becomes accepted thinking, not a feeling. He knows it, right? But how deceived is he? And anyone who reads this would know, here's a guy who's totally deceived himself into thinking he's right with God when he's the exact opposite. I should not presume that I'm any different as a human being or any less capable of presuming just like Micah does. Like, we have to be wary of that in our lives. We have to balance things against what the Word of God says. It's a potent image when he says, now I know. It's a potent image of how deceptively simple this phenomena is. 
and it's happening all over Israel. They're all doing it, right? So often these kinds of churches are, have hireling pastors, pastors that have been hired, not ones that have been raised up. There is a difference. Often these kinds of churches come with expensive trappings around their place, so the place looks gorgeous and beautiful. Often they completely ignore the word of God, especially when it's convenient or tough to hear. Often these folks are very sincere and they come across as really nice people, but they're assuming God's pleased even though they're not doing God's work. They're often extremely comfortable places. I'm kind of thankful our chairs are uncomfortable a little bit, you know. Some of you are starting to bring pads. That's okay. There's often in these places, there's next to no spiritual conflict. There's no problems and there's very little drama because no one's being challenged. Therefore, nobody gets upset. Micah is someone who, who is excited and presented as someone who's bragging about what's going on, but this false ownership's going to fall through on him very quickly. That's what, and I want to do the next chapter tonight too because it really goes together with this chapter. Right? It fits right in. Take heed of this kind of thing. Remember, Judas walked with Jesus for three years and betrayed him at the end of three years. You can be in the faith and fall into this kind of deception fairly, fairly easily. And we shouldn't be fearful of it, but we should be wary of it. Does that make sense? You know your hearts. You know where you're at. Jesus knew Judas's heart too, and he still welcomed him at his table for three years, knowing what Judas was going to do. So the Danites show up at Micah's place and they like what he's doing. In those days, there is no king in Israel. We get that refrain again in, in verse, chapter 18, verse 1. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for itself to dwell in. This dates us earlier in the book of Judges because they haven't settled yet. So, for until that day, their inheritance among the tribes of Israel had not fallen to them. So the children of Dan sent five men of their family from their territory, men of valor from Zorah and Eshtaol, to spy out the land and search it. And they said to them, go and search the land. So they went up to the mountains of Ephraim to the house of Micah, and they stayed with Micah. So Micah likely had a larger estate, which is why he might have built a shrine so people could worship there. The plot thickens. So we don't just have Micah and his priest and his son. We now have these five people coming from the tribe of Dan. Um, I won't get into Dan. I feel like we've covered that recently. Other than to say, Dan's the one of the 12 tribes that did not claim their inheritance. So they're a wandering little nomadic group. They eventually end up on the north side of Israel, but they do not take the land God assigned to them. The mountains of Ephraim seems like they're just looking at another tribe's land. So it's odd that they're scouting out land inside of someone else's territory. Compromised people and even enemies of the kingdom often do this. They don't go into things they've built. They go into things that believers have built. And then they take over those things. And you see those, that happen throughout history often. Joshua 17, 15, Joshua said to them, if you're a great people, go up to the forest company, country and clear a place for yourselves there in the land of the parasites and the giants since the mountains of Ephraim are too confined for you. The Ephraimites were in this area and the mountains were seemingly the territory that they'd settled in. So the Danites are going into the Ephraim's territory looking at land. While they were at the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. Hey, isn't that the priest we heard back in that other town, the traveling minstrel guy? 
Uh, so they recognized him. Maybe they knew him. They turned aside and said to him, they're talking to the priest, who brought you here and what are you doing in this place? What do you, what do you have here? Isn't that an interesting question to a Levite? What do you have here? So it's not just what brought you here and what are you doing here? It's what are, you, what are they giving you? Like how much are they paying you to be out here? And he said to them, thus and so Micah did for me. He's hired me and I've become his priest. That's an absolute abomination for a Levite to say that. Who do these priests belong to? God and God alone. They don't belong to Micah. This is, so this is something where you'd see the Jewish people rending their clothing. Like this is horrible stuff. But we get it here at the end of Judges because we thought Samson was bad. Check out this priest that, and check out Micah. And it gets worse. The Danites, it, it, as always with the Israelites, it gets worse. Um, but the Danites are, are going to be even worse than the priest and Micah. But this is just common. This is just how people lived back then. I've become his priest. So they said to him, please inquire of God that we can know whether the journey on which we go will be prosperous. And the priest said to them, go in peace. The presence of the Lord be with you on your way. He's just telling them what they want to hear. He doesn't go consult the Urim and the Thummim. He doesn't pray in the tabernacle. He doesn't go into the presence of God. He just presumes that he can just bless people whenever he feels like it. Scary. So a disobedient tribe, Dan, finds a disobedient, disobedient family, Micah's, and then a disobedient priest, and they're all just loving on each other. It's a love fest that's going to go bad. Please inquire of God. Um, you know, they don't want to hear from God. If they wanted to know what God had told them, they already had heard from Joshua. They're not going to be prosperous in this location. That's the real answer. They were supposed to go to Gaza. So they're getting misdirected by a Levite priest in a, a house with graven images. And they, it seems so appealing, as sin always does, and it always leads to tragedy. But they're getting what they want to hear. So... I don't know how far I want to get into this. Maybe I will afterwards. But I looked up the definition or the marketing plan for a seeker-friendly church. I was just curious. Because we have hard chairs. I talk about sin. We go through Bible chapter by chapter. We treat it for, this isn't soft and accessible teaching. This is university-level teaching we do every week. So I was really curious about this. How do we make a seeker-friendly environment? And I was joking with Alyssa about this the other week. So I was just reading up on it. Do with this what you want, but here are the various tenets of, of that kind of plan for a church. We can do any of these if you want to, as long as they align with the Word of God. It means basically to do or say nothing that would offend or drive a person away if they're seeking Christ. So as a community, we never offend. In regards to the gospel, avoid any negative talk regarding why people need Christ Simply focus on Christ loving them and welcoming them. Have you seen this in churches you've visited? I'm like, oh. Uh, focus teachings in the church, this is advice to pastors, on positive thinking, self-improvement, psychology, and how to lead a better, more prosperous life. Okay, I, yeah, we can do that. If you want a prosperous life, tribe of Dan, you should have gone southwest, not north. There is number two. There is no teaching ever on anything negative. 
Sermons should always focus on positive things, often with an emphasis on you or your listener more than God. Stay with topical teaching, not expository. If you don't know what the word expository is, it's what we do every Sunday night, chapter by chapter. Expository means to take the meaning of the Bible out of the Bible. What's the other word? I, not expository, but us. ISO something teaching means to take what you want to hear and find it in the Bible and then teach it. I wish I knew the word. Bad preparation. Told you. All sermons should be roughly 20 minutes, and they actually say, so no one gets bored. I'm so blessed that some of you fall asleep while I teach. Like that's, yeah, like we're here to, maybe sometimes we get bored. But, but <laughs> Eisegesis, thank you. Eisegesis versus expository. Uh, focus on one to two verses and then apply them to real life situations for 20 minutes. I like the focusing on the verses, that's good. Big numbers are usually associated with God's blessing on what's going on. Track your numbers as a church and brag about them. I've heard this. We, we went to a thing where they were all like, God wouldn't have written a book called Numbers if they didn't matter. And <laughs> Selling Jesus is important. Cutting-edge sound, light systems, marketing planning, coffee or free food and drinks, secular community events where you show Jesus' light through your lifestyle, but not through the teaching of the word, dances, dinners, overnight stays, and other activities. I actually kind of like this list for me, but the rationale for their list is to sell Jesus. Does Jesus need to get sold? Do we need to market Jesus to people? Or the word of God says the Holy Spirit works on people's hearts and God added to their number daily. So we shouldn't need to sell Jesus, but I don't know. I like light shows. That's awesome. And then instead of teaching thicker theology on sermons, you do them in classes. So you have a series of smaller classes that people can take in highly controlled environments. So that's the formula. And that formula is... I don't want to name names. You all know these churches. They're huge because they do exactly what people want them to do. They tickle their ears. The Bible uses that phrase. Just get your ears tickled every week. Man, I spent 30 years in those churches, you guys. Didn't learn crap. Didn't learn to serve my king. Didn't learn to get past those uncomfortable things of walking with God. Didn't have brothers and sisters around me that were trying to do the same thing. I've grown so much more when I'm just in the Word doing what God wants me to do than in a, getting my ears tickled every week. Frankly, I got sick of getting my ears tickled. It's just kind of like, I don't want that anymore. I'm tired of that. I've grown tired. Okay, I'm, I've been on my podium too long. Sorry. Verse 7. So the five men departed and they went to La Laish. They saw the people who were there, how they dwelt safely in the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure, easy life, man. And there were no rulers in the land who might put them to shame for anything. Because we don't want that. We don't want people to make us feel guilty about our sin. So they were far from the Sidonians and they had no ties with anybody. Another indicative situation, not being tied in. Look at the rise in non-denominational churches across our country. We don't want any oversight. We want to do what we want to do without any oversight. And look at the number of churches that have leaders fall in big public ways. It's the same tradition. It goes, it's two sides of one coin. 
And then the spies came back to their brethren at Zorah and Eshtol and their brethren and said to them, what's to your report? So they're within spitting distance of the temple. And so they said, arise, let's go against them, these Sidonians, for we've seen the land and indeed it's very good. Would you do nothing? It's wide open. Don't hesitate to go and enter in and possess the land. When you go, you'll come to a secure people in a large land and God's given it into your hands, a place where there's no lack of anything on the earth. Another indicator of this mentality. It's super easy and you'll have everything. And like I grew up with being told by my grandparents, like you don't get a free lunch. You don't get something for nothing. It doesn't work that way. But that's the selling point here. You get, you, there's no lack of anything on the earth. There's no place on the earth that has no lack of anything, right? Except maybe Las Vegas. But everywhere else on the earth, you're going to lack of something. It's a huge exaggeration at the end of verse 10. And that idea of, would you do nothing? Would you not do this when it's so open? But there's no prayer here. There's no consulting. Uh, there's a technological term or a theological term for this mentality. And that is what I would call unicorns and butterflies, <laughs> right? It's all perfect and wonderful. And you can just go into this land. There's no rulers. You dwell in safety. It's quiet and secure. So dwelling in safety gets elevated as a virtue that safety is more important than anything else. Quiet and secure. Uh, it's that idea that there's a false peace in doing what's in the flesh. It's easy. The, the no rulers, sinners resist any kind of oversight. They don't want somebody over their, spiritually over them or physically or, or, or economically over them. I don't want a boss. Might put them to shame. They want safe spaces where nobody ever challenges or confronts overt sin. There's no ties with anyone. You see that? No engagement with the world, no challenges, no trials. We're just going to put our head in the sand like an ostrich and forget that our butt is sticking out, right? Like an ostrich. It's the same. All right. God's given it to us. Nope, that's not true. God did not give them this land. So now they're lying about the situation. No lack of anything. Then they exaggerate about the situation. We get difficult theological ideas and, and archetypes of evil in Judges. We don't get them in Genesis. I think there's a reason for that. If we know the law, we can start to discern between what's right and wrong, even when it's difficult to discern. Because this passage, verses 9 through 10, you could read that without the law as your context, and yeah, it all sounds good. It sounds great. That's the deception. Satan doesn't show up in red tights and a pitchfork. He shows up as an attractive, appealing thing for humanity. And this is the method that gets used to lead an entire nation astray. Safety, security, no rulers with any sort of power. Nobody saying that they're wrong about anything. No ties to other parts of the world. God's, then they say that this is all God doing it. And it's evil. And it's wrong because it's not what God says. It sounds good, but it's a dream of humanity to have utopia, unicorns and butterflies, the technical term, when that's not what God's promised. It's not what God has asked us to do. Verse 11, And 600 men and his family of the Danites went up from there, from Zorah and Eshtol, armed with weapons of war, and they went up and they camped in Kirath-Jerim in Judah. Therefore they call the place Mahanadan, the camp of Dan, to this day. There it was, west of Kirith-Jerim. So these fighting men go up. They're taking the easy path. 
only 600 men out of the entire tribe of Danite. They take verse 21, the kids and the livestock come along. The whole tribe of Dan is moving into this territory that they're not supposed to be in. Verse 13, and they passed from there to the mountains of Ephraim and they came to the house of Micah. The whole tribe of Dan shows up at the house of Micah. Now watch what happens. Then the five men who went out to spy the country of Laish answered and said to their brothers, do you know that there's in this house an ephod, household idols, a carved image, and a molded image? Now, therefore, consider what you should do. Okay, what should they do? We know the law. They should destroy the idols and kill Micah and his whole household. So it's, in, if you look in the Old Testament, this kind of idolatry is not welcomed. It, it's a kind of corruption, this selfish proclaiming my own thing kind of thing. It's not okay. So the houses is in the plural, implying that Micah's ruling over a small territory with multiple families. We think of a house, we think of a single family house. They didn't do that in the ancient world. There would have been multiple families and generations all living together. Verse 15. So they turned aside from there and they came to the house of the young Levite man to the house of Micah and they greeted him. Hi, how you doing? 600 men armed with their weapons of war who were the children of Dan stood by the entrance of the gate. Here's the problem with sin. What seems so easy for you is also easy for 600 people with weapons. What seems so safe and secure for you, surely I'll be blessed by the Lord God Almighty, Micah said. Is this a blessing? Then the five men who had gone out to spy the land entered there. They took the, the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the molded image. So at this point, there's multiple graven images and molded images throughout the house. The priest stood at the entrance of the gate with the 600 men who were armed with weapons of war in these houses. <laughs> God's direction when it comes to idols is super clear. Taking them for yourself is not what we agreed was what they should do here. So not only did they take them for themselves, but then see what they do next. When these went into Micah's house and they took the carved image and the ephod, the household idols, and the molded images, and the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, shut up. No, they said, be quiet. And put your hand over your mouth. <laughs> shut it. Come with us. Be a father and a priest to us. Shut up, but be our priest. You know, do it the way we want you to do it. Is it better for you to be a priest in the household of one man or that you be a priest to a tribe and a family in Israel? So the priest's heart was glad. Oh my goodness. And he took the ephod and the household idols and he took all his stuff and the carved image and he took his place among the people. So he gets a promotion. Why would you want to be the priest of just one house where you can be the priest of Dan? Well, okay. Let me take my carven images with me he gathers them all up. He helps them steal from Micah. Micah is not blessed in this situation. Um, basically, when 600 people with weapons tell you to shut up, that's a threat. You can die or you can be part of us. You can join us. This is invasion of the body snatchers at the best, you know. Um, they don't destroy the idols. They recruit the idols. The priests here, it's such a weird sentence. In verse 20, instead of being terrified, his heart was glad. He wants the, with pride bursting forth, 
He's excited about this promotion. Instead of humbly serving what God's given him, like he wants the combine to harvest the field. He doesn't want the sickle. But God cares about every plant. And if God put him with Micah's family, he should humbly serve Micah's family until God tells him to go somewhere else. But he gets this offer. He takes it. His heart was glad about it. He's not trusting God's will. He's trusting himself. There's no evidence in the story of moral debate. There's no, um, he just gets more money and more prestige and he's excited about it. I struggled with this. I'll confess as a sinner, every time I got an offer for promotion, I took it. And I, my heart was glad. Look at what God's doing. What a cool opportunity. Went from teacher to principal. Then I went to, what did I do after that? Researcher. Then I went to being a prof. Then I went to being a department chair. You get the books, and none of it matters in God's kingdom. At the end of the day, I can teach a lot of people psychology, but if they go to hell, I didn't teach them anything. Or I can teach my own family the word of God and make sure I got my crew with me in heaven. And praise the Lord, my family got a lot bigger. And I'm so excited that we get to do this together and we get to seek God's face together. So much more important than the next promotion. But that promotion is so alluring in our flesh. It's a, we should be so glad. And we can be glad. Promotions are great. And you can do a great ministry in those things. But if you're not doing it in the will of God, if you haven't prayed about it and put it before God and offered that position up to God, you shouldn't just have your heart glad and take it and steal the idols. Like, because he's taken all his idols with him into the next job. He's not going to just corrupt one family. He's going to pollute an entire tribe. This is what's happening in Israel. And the writer's trying to get us to see that. This is why Israel needed a king. Only they get a false king. But, okay, so they steal with a cold-heartedness that is unprecedented in the scriptures so far. This is cold to do this. Because remember, he was like a father to Micah, right? Surely God will be with us in the last chapter. This is all good. Everything's awesome. And then it all falls apart like a house of cards. A little more money, a little more prestige. Boom, there goes your father figure. So it was a fake family, like I said before. But a cold ruthlessness to people outside of God's law. God's law wants us to be self-sacrificial, but not in this situation at all. God's people need to discern that it's not just about how we look or what we wear. It really is about our hearts, right? But he takes the ephod with him too. So he grabs his Jesus t-shirt and he goes to the next tribe. Verse 21, then they turned and departed and put the little ones, the livestock and the goods in front of them because they expect to be attacked from behind, right? So when they were a good way from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house gathered together and they overtook the children of Dan. So Micah gets all his people out and they're going to go fight. They called out to the children of Dan so they turned around and said to Micah, what ails you that you've gathered such a company? Ah, oh, this is just smarmy, isn't it? He just ripped off this house. 200 shekels of silver in one of those idols. These things are worth money. It's not a, that's 20 years of labor in one of these things. What ails you? What ails him is he just got stolen from, which breaks another commandment. By not addressing the issue, by pretending like they've done nothing wrong, we see a, not a good example of Israel or God's people. Because these are all Israelites, right? In verse 24, so he says, 
Well, you've taken away my goods, which I made. Did he make them? No, the silversmith made them, so he's kind of lying there. And the priest, and you've gone away, and now what more do I have? How can you say to me, what ails you? Here's the problem with false religion. When it falls apart, it's devastating. Because if he doesn't have his idol and his priest, what does he have? And the answer is nothing. And you never had anything. You just faked yourself out. You thought you had it all, but you don't have anything. What good does it do to prophesy in your name? We can move mountains in God's name. We can witness to everyone we know, but if we don't have love, we have nothing. We've just faked ourselves out. One relationship that's godly is better than a thousand relationships that's not godly. I'm paraphrasing Solomon. It's so precious to have something that's good and holy. What ails you? Everything. This is horrible. Verse 25. And the children of Dan said to him, don't let your voice be heard among us. So they say again, shut up. Lest angry men fall upon you and you lose your life with lives of your household. We'll kill you and your whole family. Because in a world without God's law, powerful people do whatever they want. When a country falls apart, powerful people do whatever they want. And it all starts with just making a shrine in your house. Because if I can do whatever I want, people stronger than me can do whatever they want. And at some point it becomes oppression, not freedom. And that's the nature of humanity. Then the children of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his house. He has nothing. We see a different perspective than we saw with Gideon where his dad says, if Baal's a god, let him plead for himself because his altar's been tore down. If Micah's god was real, wouldn't God defend himself here? Micah's finding he has no defense in his time of need, no shelter, no strong thing. When you find a Christian that's devastated in their faith, they didn't have a strong tower to run into. And you may need to be the light of God in their life and provide them a refuge because they didn't have one. They had something that they called Christianity, but it's not helping them when they need it to help. If Christianity is real, it should actually be there for us when we need it to be there for us. Second thought from the New Testament, Luke 12, 33. Sell what you have, give alms, provide yourselves money bags which don't grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief can approach or any moth destroys. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And and I think that's what they're teaching here in the book of Judges. When you lose something and you consider it something you can't afford to lose, you're worshiping it. So look around your house, look at everything you own. Could you give it all away tomorrow? And would you still have the Lord God Almighty in your life? So when in doubt, have an auction and start getting rid of stuff. And that's the advice of Luke. Like, you can't fall into that trap. Oh, you guys are planning an auction, aren't you? Okay. That would be fun. Yeah. The book of Judges should cultivate our desire for more in our faith. It has to be more than this, or it's fake. Verse 27, So they took the things Micah made and the priests that belonged to him, and they went to Laish, and the people, the, to a people quiet and secure, and then they strike them with the edge of the sword and burn the city with fire. Then they go and they mass murder people. Absolute evil and chaos. There was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon and they had no ties with anyone. All the things they thought were so good now become 
a trap for the Sidonians. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob, and they rebuilt the city and dwelt there, and they called the, city, the name of the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their father, very creative naming, who was born in Israel. However, the name of the city was former, formerly Laish. They took, they struck, they burned. This is what people do when there's no law. They just do whatever they want to do. There's no deliverer. Verse 28, God doesn't deliver in this situation. He doesn't show up for this kind of people. Um, verse 30, I'm not giving a lot of commentary here because I, I just don't think there's much needed. Like this kind of speaks for itself. Then the children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, and his sons were the priests of Dan until the day of captivity in the land. See how the writer connects this to captivity? Like he goes past the era of kings and goes straight to Babylon with that line. This isn't just why they needed a king. This is why they needed to go to Babylon and be destroyed as a nation because this is the kind of people they were. Verse 31, so they set up for themselves Micah's carved image, which he made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. So again, the writer brings us back to the, what he implied at the beginning, which is this is right next to the tabernacle, right next door. There's God's plan for worship, and then here's this plan for worship, and they set up these false idols right next door, within spitting distance. Um, Joshua is then the grandson of Moses, implying again that this is at the beginning of the book of Judges. This would be during Othniel and maybe the end of Joshua's reign. This is how bad it was at the start. So we see the leaders of Israel get worse and worse and worse through Judges. And then the writer says, oh, but the people of Israel were, ba were bad from the start. This was happening all over the place. These bandits, these thieves, murderers. All the time that God was in the house of Shiloh. God's in the house of Shiloh. He's not in chapter 17 and 18. This is not where God lives. So when people say, oh, look, Israel slaughtered people, and they point at these verses, yeah, they did. God wasn't in that. It's like pointing to the Crusades, saying how evil Christianity is. Okay, God wasn't in mass slaughter and never has been. And this chapter is clearly even says God was in, the, it was in Shiloh. He was not with the tribe of Dan, right? And it's very clearly pointed out this is not something we should model. It's something we should run from. It's a cautionary tale. So it's pretty bad. Arguably, 17 and 18 set up a justified case of why God sends his people to Babylon to learn a lesson about respect and humility and the power of God. When they get to Babylon, I just want to point out how bad Israel is, and they're told to bow to an idol, what percentage of the Israelites bow to that idol? We don't know. That's a trick question. I bet you know the number of people that refuse to bow. Four. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel. Four out of the entire nation bow to that idol. If we think as Christians we're immune to deceiving ourselves into our own kind of righteousness and holiness, praise the Lord we have the Holy Spirit washing all over the church. We have to be as cautionary about this to ourselves and our own families as Israel was, or we'll find ourselves bowing to idols that God doesn't want us bowing to. Where our heart is, there is our worship. So we have to be, we have to hear this in that kind of way. Amen? Dear Lord and King, we thank you for your word. This is a tough message tonight, Lord, and, and I pray that you help us search our souls, search our hearts.
Lord, I don't want to come to your word idly, and I don't want to take it for granted. Lord, I hope you are my king and my Lord, and I want to follow you, not with just with my head or my words. I never want to say the word of the Lord, the name of the Lord, your holy name of Jesus, and not respect what you say and how to live. Lord, help me not to make up my own righteousness. Lord, I confess if, I've, if I do that, Lord, show it to me. Break my heart, Lord, because you broke yours for me. And help me to love you the way you loved me. I don't need my life, Lord. I give it to you wholeheartedly. And Lord, I, I would rather be miserable with you than comfortable, safe, and secure with the world. So Lord, help me to be in your arms where I know there is help in time of need and there is a deliverer because that's what we want, Lord. We want to be delivered from this world and from our sin because we run to your loving and holy arms. Lord, I thank you for your law. It's precious. Help me to meditate on it day and night that I know your words so well that when there is deceptions in the world, I see them for what they are. Lord, give me eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, you say in the end of days there will be many false prophets. They'll be all over the place, luring away even the elect if they're so able to do it. So, Lord, we know that that's happening in and out of our churches. We know that we live in an environment where serving yous become an act of rebellion in our culture. But, Lord, helps us to do it anyways. And we don't want to rebel against something. We want to run to you and help us to just see the hope and the grace, the peace, the fellowship, the relationships of love, Lord, that add up to so much more than anything this world has to offer. Lord, we pray for our friends and our family that are maybe living more like Micah than like Joshua. Lord, we just pray for their hearts too. Help us to be uh, not just saying things, but to be living a life uh, that shows who you are to people. Lord, we, want, we don't want a religion that tickles our ears. We want a, a faith that moves our hearts and turns us into something more than what we had. Help us to get past our discomforts. If there's anything in the kingdom that we're not good at doing or used to doing, Lord, move us and move our hearts to overcome those hesitations in the flesh so that we can become more like you. Uh, we want to do that. Lord, do that in my heart. Uh, change me and make me new and refresh me this day. Lord, I pray for your spirit to fall on us like a fire, a fire that burns away impurities and gets rid of the things in our life that keep us from you, the stumbling blocks. Uh, Lord, help us to do that in love and in grace with each other. Help us, Lord, to have grace for people that aren't where we're at on our walk in the faith. Help us to know that you're working in their hearts just like you work in our hearts and to have patience and long-suffering. Um, Lord, help us to have grace and peace and love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.